if we look at statistics from like the Linus Pauling Institute, which is tracking this probably better than any other institution or organization, 100% of Americans are not getting enough potassium. 94% aren't getting enough vitamin D. 93% aren't getting enough magnesium. 92% choline. 89% vitamin E. I could go on, but you get the picture, right? We're not, again, we're not talking about a, a rare issue. We're not talking about something that affects five out of a hundred people. We're talking about most people being deficient in not just one, but several essential micronutrients, like micronutrients that we absolutely need for optimal function. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Courtney, and you are listening to the Ancient Health Podcast. Today, our expert is Chris Kresser. He is a clinician and educator in the field of functional medicine. You may know some of his books because he was also a New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine, and has been named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. So Chris has co-founded and co-directed the California Center for Functional Medicine, which is one of the largest functional medicine clinics on the West Coast. And throughout his 15-year career has helped hundreds of patients reverse chronic disease and recover their health and vitality. Chris is also the founder of the Cresser Institute, which trains functional health clinicians and coaches to help turn the tide of chronic disease and change the future of medicine. I was really looking forward to this episode. I know you're going to love it. We talk about everything from the epidemic of nutrient deficiency, why nutrient deficiencies exist even in developed countries. Yes, all the grocery stores, everywhere you turn, you see so much food, but we're still living in a state of being starved for nutrition. So we talk about toxins, we talk about all kinds of chronic disease and all how this relates to nutrient deficiency. So I know you're going to love this episode as much as I did. So with that, let's get into today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. So excited to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Okay. So your life's work has really been connecting the dots between nutrient deficiency and chronic disease. And I even saw a recent study I actually think the CDC published this and it's the last couple of years. We, so we can all take that with a heavy grain of salt, but <laughs> they, they have now said that the average life expectancy has gone down. You know, the last couple of years, it has consecutively gone down, which means that if our modern healthcare is increasing in, in the ability to have people sustain a healthier life, supposedly then, and we've got more abundance of resources. Like we are not deficient in resources, but we are deficient in nutrients. Like there is a clear disconnect there. So what, what, what is like bridge the gap? Like what is standing in the way? What's creating this massive epidemic of nutrient deficiency? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the easiest way to summarize it is that we're overfed, but undernourished. So if you look at over the past, you know, 50 years, you see a steady increase in the number of calories that the average American, and this is true for most people in the industrialized world, other rich countries like the UK, Canada, Australia, etc. A steady increase in the number of calories that people are eating, but actually a decline in the amount of nutrients that they're getting from their food. And that's because today, 60% of the calories the average American consumes, and I believe it's just about 50% in the UK, come from not just processed food, but ultra processed food. So this is a new designation that researchers created to uh, point to foods that are like 
you know, flour, industrial seed oils, sugar, sugar sweetened beverages, cakes, cookies, crackers, pizza, chicken nuggets, you know, a, a lot of the foods that unfortunately now comprise over half of what Americans eat on, on a caloric basis. And there are so many problems with these foods, it's difficult to know where to start. But in the context of the nutrient uh, deficiency topic, they are very high in calories and very low in nutrients. And that's essentially the opposite of what we should be doing. With each bite of food, we want to be maximizing the nutrient density of all of the food that we consume, which means in general, and there are some exceptions, we can talk, talk about that. You want lower calories, but higher nutrients. And so we flip that on its head. And that's what's causing a lot of the chronic diseases that we face today. So what would you say the current climate is for the person that maybe is trying to stay away from all of these foods? Because like, let's be honest, we have a lot of people, they're listening to this podcast because they see the value in their health. And they realize that if they're not proactive, they're not taking extra steps to put their body in a position of healing, that it's just, you're just waiting for the next symptom. You're waiting to, for disease to manifest in a way that really disrupts your life. So for the person that is trying to eat a really clean diet and they're buying the pastured eggs and they're do they're going above and beyond, like what statistically, like, are we still seeing nutrient deficiencies for those people? Even, you know, the ones that are trying to stay away from all of the ones that, you know, we know for a fact are completely devoid of nutritional value. Yeah. And that's frankly kind of depressing. Um, it's, it's news that I didn't, I wish I didn't have to deliver to people because if you're doing all those things, you're making a big effort. It's kind of discouraging that you're, you're not, if you don't meet all of your nutrient needs that way, I would prefer to live in a world where we could meet all of our nutrient needs through food. Um, and certainly that's the world that our distant ancestors lived in, but it's unfortunately not the world that we live in anymore. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is a decline in soil quality. So it's not that the nutrients aren't present in the soil anymore. It's that the plants are less able to extract the nutrients. Uh, because we've disrupted the soil microbiome with chemical pesticides, fer uh, fertilizers, herbicides, uh, industrial methods of agriculture. And, and in the same way that, you know, antibiotics and other medications and modern lifestyle things disrupt our, our gut microbiome, and that prevents us from absorbing nutrients, the same thing happens with plants that are growing in, in soil like that. And then, of course, if we eat the plants and the plants have fewer nutrients, we absorb less. Or if we eat animals that have eaten the plants, they will have less nutrients, too. So we get hit on both sides there. Another reason is the globalization of the food system. So there are, of course, some advantages to that, but there's some big downsides. As soon as you take a plant out of the ground, it immediately starts losing its nutritional value. And... I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard the statistic that the average carrot travels 1,800 miles before it gets on your plate. But, but now, you know, you could go out to a restaurant and eat, um, and, and eat, you know, let's say you go to a Vietnamese restaurant and the, the basil and the pho is from Guatemala and the bean sprouts are from China and, you know, the carrots are from the Central Valley and you're in California and you're in New York City. You know, like you, you literally could have 
produce coming from all over the world and that means that that the nutrition there has declined precipitously uh before those those foods um before you eat them and absorb them would you say that eating seasonally or eating more locally if possible is a good strategy for people if you're trying to look for foods that are going to have a higher nutritional value a hundred percent i mean basically the shorter you can make the time between when the food comes out of the ground and when it goes in your mouth the better so of course growing your own food in your own backyard or even if if you live in the city even growing some fresh herbs in like a, a box a window box or something like that can make a really big difference but yeah you know going to a farmer's market and uh, buying produce that the farmer likely harvested a day, a day or two before is going to have a huge impact relative even to buying produce from like whole foods or another health food store and then again you know which is in turn generally better than buying from a conventional store because at least good health food stores will make typically make an effort to source local produce and usually you can look and see you know sometimes they'll write on the card where it comes from or it'll they'll put the name of the farm and you can look it up and see where it is so that's very important and then the same goes for for animal products you know in many places now you can buy uh, meat directly from a farm or dairy directly from a farm. There are CSAs now that um, farmers who raise animals, so you can get a box of meat, you know, once a month, or you could buy a whole a quarter of a cow and go in with friends or, you know, your family if you have a chest freezer and, and, and buy in bulk, and you're going to get more nutrient-dense meat that way because those animals are eating foods that are, you know, locally grown and uh, for, the same, for the same reasons. Uh, there's another reason, I mean, there are so many, <laughs> I'm going to stick with the top ones, that, that this is a problem, which is the growing uh, prevalence of environmental toxins. Heavy metals like lead, cadmium, mercury, arsenic, uh, glyphosate, bisphenol A, which is an estrogenic compound that's found in plastics and, and can, you know, some cans, all of these toxins um, bind to minerals, or if you put it the other way around, minerals will bind to the toxins and make it uh, difficult for us to absorb and utilize the minerals that those toxins are bound to. So just the growing prevalence of those toxins in the environment really reduces nutrient availability. And then the, the, the last one, I'll stop there for now, is the growing rates of chronic disease. So chronic disease has a double whammy effect on nutrient status first it increases the demand for nutrients chronic diseases are stressors on the body and when we're under stress we actually have a higher need for nutrition because those nutrients are cofactors and en enzyme for enzymes and all of the things that happen in the body require nutrients so if you're under stress you need more of that going on right on the flip side most chronic diseases will actually decrease the nutrients that we absorb from a given amount of food. This is particularly true of gut-related conditions, but it's not limited to gut-related conditions. For example, studies have shown that people with obesity and diabetes absorb less vitamin D from supplements and food than, than people who are lean and, and have normal uh, blood sugar and metabolism. And we don't even fully understand why that is in some cases, but this has been documented in several different studies.
And we know now that six in 10 Americans have one, at least one chronic disease and four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. So this is not a problem that just affects a handful of people. This is a problem that essentially affects the majority of Americans today. This brings up a really good point in connecting chronic disease and even with the minerals, because I think this is really important to realize stress and minerals, if toxins are binding to minerals and minerals can also help move toxins out of the body, they're, they're needed to help build energy, but we can also help facilitate detoxification, but we're burning through all these reserves. So it's kind of like this snowball effect of where our body can't build energy to move the toxins out of the body. We're depleting nutrients, you know, from the, the, the presence of uh, organ deficiency in the body. So we have this kind of perpetuated um, cascade of events that's happening that's just depleting and depleting and depleting. And now I imagine that for somebody, whether you have a diagnosis or not, I mean, there's so many people, even women that are just, they have hormone imbalances, right? That's a stress on the body. So where is it? If you're thinking, gosh, I probably have these nutrient deficiencies. Do you see patterns in people where women seem to be depleted of a certain profile of nutrients or men, or even geographically, like what is it that you're seeing as a clinician and, you know, just studying the scientific data on this where someone might be able to find out. And I know there's testing too, but I imagine that you start to see patterns um, amongst people where you start to see that there are specific nutrients or minerals that seem to be depleted all the time because of all the things you just said, even the presence of the toxins. Yeah, it's a kind of good way of looking at it because testing is available, but it's problematic for several reasons. Uh, it would be lovely <laughs> as a clinician if there was just one test that I could order that would give me, you know, accurate readings for all of the different nutrients that I would want to test. Unfortunately, that test doesn't exist and it probably never will because nutrients are stored and partitioned in different tissues depending on the nutrient. So you can quite easily test for vitamin D in the blood, but it's very difficult to do that for magnesium because 99.5% of magnesium is stored in bone and inside of tissue. So when you measure it in the blood, you're only measuring one half percent of the total magnesium that should be in the body at any given time. Another example is calcium. Calcium has to be maintained in a very tight range in the blood. If it goes too far above that or too far below that, we die. <laughs> so the body will kind of do anything it possibly can to maintain calcium in that very narrow range, including withdrawing calcium from the bones when we don't eat enough of it, which is why not eating enough calcium leads to osteoporosis, osteopenia. So if you measure calcium in the serum and it's in that normal range, it doesn't tell you anything about your calcium intake. All it tells you is you're not dead or you're not, you know, suffering an acute health crisis that is, li is life-threatening. So those are a few examples of why the testing is really difficult. In functional medicine, we have, you know, we can uh, assemble different tests, urine, saliva, hair, blood, and get a good picture. But frankly, most people don't have access to a, a functional medicine clinician. And, you know, a lot of those tests are out of pocket, so they can be very expensive. So what I tell people is 
essentially you can assume you're is assume you're nutrient deficient unless these other factors are true and even if these factors are true you still might be which is like you're eating organ meats and shellfish on a regular basis which are among the most nutrient dense foods we talk about that dark leafy greens you don't have a chronic disease you're eating fresh foods from your local farmers market uh, or you know hopefully coming from within a pretty narrow radius of where you live most of the time you don't have any gut issues that would interfere with absorption you're pretty sure that most of the foods you eat you know your your toxic exposure is low you're sleeping really well you're not under a lot of stress I mean, <laughs> I think everybody is I like, we oh, just, okay, we just <laughs> yeah, we just eliminated most of the population. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of the world that we live in today. You know, I'm part of that. Like, I'm, I don't fit all of those criteria at this point either myself. And I'm pretty highly educated <laughs> on this yeah. stuff. I'm, I, I'm pretty good in most of those areas, but I'm a, I'm a human being like everybody else. And there are areas where I fall short. And that's why I take additional steps to make sure I'm getting the nutrients that I need because I recognize that the world we live in today is not the world we lived in before. So what I think the way to do it is, is if you think of it as a spectrum of likelihood that you're nutrient deficient on the one end is very unlikely on the other, on the other end is very likely. And you just sort of with each of those factors that I mentioned, you know, for each one that tends toward nutrient deficiency, it will bias you over to that other end of the, you know, to that end of the spectrum where it's, it's likely. It seems kind of low tech to do it that way, and it is, but if we look at statistics from like the Linus Pauling Institute, which is tracking this probably better than any other institution or organization, 100% of Americans are not getting enough potassium. 94% aren't getting enough vitamin D. 93% aren't getting enough magnesium. 92% choline. 89% vitamin E. I could go on, but you get the picture, right? We're not, again, we're not talking about a, a rare issue. We're not talking about something that affects five out of 100 people. We're talking about most people being deficient in not just one, but several essential micronutrients, like micronutrients that we absolutely need for optimal function. All right, guys, we're going to, we're going to bring in like the, we're, now we're going to talk about the, the stuff that's going to write the ship because these statistics are crazy. Here, here's what I'm picturing going into Whole Foods, grocery store, whatever. There's just stuff everywhere, right? There's produce. Like we have, we, we just have so much. And then you know, I go to like most of my friends' houses, you can open up their cabinets in their kitchen and they have just a graveyard of supplements. Like they've bought everything that somebody has suggested, right? And like, I'm just as guilty. I'll do the exact same thing. Like I've got, you know, I'm like, okay, that sounds great. That worked for that person. Here we are, you know, still got some low thyroid, still having gut infections, like all these things, low energy and, and brain fog. And so it's like, okay. What can we do for diet? Because you bring up a really good point that there are nutritious foods, but I think that maybe it seems like it would be pretty obvious what these nutritious foods are, but I think a lot of us might be missing the mark on what those foods are that we can be incorporating. So maybe one, we identify that. And then two, you know, should we be supplementing? And then what are, yeah. what, what, what are people doing wrong? Because it's like, 
I see it. It's so much overconsumption. Like you said in the beginning of this episode, like we are overfed and undernourished. We overconsume everything, yet we are depleted on the inside. So let's maybe go through, because I, I definitely want to hit on the foods that I know that you've studied that are backed by research. They are, they are the heavy hitters if you're looking for nutrition. And I feel like all of us need to be prioritizing those food groups. Absolutely. So this is going to we're going to cover a lot of information here. So I have a free ebook. If people want all the details, ref, scientific references, everything, go to chriscresser.com slash nutrient dash deficiency. So chriscresser.com slash nutrient dash deficiency. You don't have to worry about writing anything down or keeping track of all this because it's a lot. It's also going to surprise a lot of people, I think. I'll just set this up by talking a little bit about the study, which just was published last year, and the authors and why it's different than previous nutrient uh, density studies. It was published in 2022 in March, I believe, so almost a year uh, ago, in the journal Frontiers of Nutrition. And the primary author was Ty Beal, amazing uh, scientist I've had on my podcast a couple times. And he's a research advisor on the knowledge leadership team at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. So their, their primary um, reason for being is to end malnutrition worldwide. So very noble cause. And uh, he'll be the first person to tell you that there's a great misconception that malnutrition is something that just affects the developing world. You know, poorer countries, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, um, parts of Asia, et cetera. That's true, of course. But uh, what he will say is that it's a rampant problem, even in the richest countries in the world, like the United States and Canada. In order to tackle this problem, they're thinking about it, you know, economically, socially, politically, like, how, you know, they're trying to answer the question, what foods will give us the biggest bang for our buck from a calorie and number of grams perspective? In other words, what foods could people eat the least of that would have the the greatest concentration of nutrients uh, because when you're working in countries that are very poor that's a, a really important question right and the nutrients that they were specifically concerned with are the ones that are the most common nutrient deficiencies worldwide so these are iron zinc folate which is b9 uh, vitamin a or retinol calcium and vitamin b12 so the other thing that's really important about this study this separates it from other studies that have been done like this in the past, is that they considered the very important role of bioavailability. So bioavailability is a term that means how much of that nutrient that you eat is actually absorbed. Many people understandably might assume that it's 100%. You know, if you look at a nutrition la label, like let's say spinach, and you see that there's 115 milligrams of spinach in a, in, or of calcium in, in one serving of spinach, you might naturally assume that you're going to absorb all of that calcium from spinach. But the truth is the bioavailability of calcium from spinach is only 5%. So of that 115 milligrams, you will only absorb 6 milligrams of calcium from that serving of spinach. Nobody tells you that, right? Like, I feel like wow. most people who read labels have no idea that they're only going to absorb 5% of that calcium from spinach. Now, even with dairy, which is like among the most bioavailable sources 
of, of calcium, it's 35, 30 or 35%. So six to seven times higher than in spinach, but it's still not 100%, right? So this is just the way it works. And a lot of previous studies on nutrient density did not consider bioavailability. So if they were looking at like, what's the most nutrient dense source of calcium, spinach would, be pretty, would have been pretty high on the list in those previous studies because they, they weren't factoring this uh, in. So this study was the first one to do it. And they ranked foods according to nutrient density. And on this scale, a lower score was better because the score refers to the number of calories that you have to eat of that food to, to meet a basic threshold for those nutrients. So a low score means you, bear, you don't have to eat very much to meet that threshold. Number one on the list, liver. I'm sure people heard all the liver king stuff and every, all the drama that's been going on around that recently. And I'm not gonna wade into to that. I will just say that he's right about that. Liver is the single most nutrient dense food that we can eat from an ounce per ounce, you know, gram per, per gram perspective. It was number one on the list for these nutrients and its score was 11. So keep this in mind as we go down the rest of the list. So the next food on the list was spleen. Kind of have a feeling not a lot of people listening to this are eating spleen on a regular basis. Still super nutrient dense, but 62. So that's already five, more than five times less nutrient dense than liver. Uh, small dried fish, that's like anchovies, herring, sardines, etc. The 65. Dark leafy green vegetables, 72. Bivalves with like oysters, 90. Kidney, another organ meat, 125. Heart, another organ, 163. Crustaceans like uh, shrimp, 193. Goat, 205. Beef, 275. Eggs, 281. Milk, 287. And then vitamin A rich fruits and vegetables, 297. So even vitamin A rich fruits and vegetables, peppers, carrots, you know, the, the bright, orange, red uh, type of vegetables are over 20 times, more like 25 times less nutrient dense than liver when it comes to those key nutrients. <laughs> so I, this is a good time for a caveat. So when we're talking about this scale, we are talking about those essential nutrients that I mentioned, iron, folate, B12, calcium, zinc, and these are super important because we need them to function well. And as I said, they're the most common nutrient deficiencies around the world. I am not suggesting, however, that those are the only important nutrients. I do believe that human beings need phytonutrients as well. So these are nutrients that come primarily from plants. They're not essential vitamins and minerals. They are things like carotenoids, uh, polyphenols, flavonoids, uh, lignans, sterols, and stanols, and then fiber, which doesn't feed us, but feeds our gut bacteria. So those were not measured in this study. So I just want to be really clear about that. I'm not saying you should only eat organ meats and shellfish and, and nothing else and vegetables are bad. When it comes to those essential vitamins and minerals, which are the ones that we absolutely need for optimal health and longevity, those are the most nutrient-dense foods. And I'm seeing a correlation between the ones that you say that are essential and those are the ones that are most commonly depleted and the categories of those foods, because 
the majority of them are organs and we don't consume those in our culture in America, especially now in other parts of the world, it is maybe more common or it's something that is culturally more norm, like the norm and acceptable, but you're not going to the grocery store and finding a lot of those. Like you, you have to kind of have to like know the farm and go out there. And then on top of that, you also have to know how to cook with it. And most of us are not educated on how to cook chicken liver or, you know, beef tongue or something like that. In fact, we actually did an episode. I think it was episode 160 with chef James Berry, who I've heard on the Weston a price, um, their podcast. And so we had him on cause he was talking about his seasonings, things like that. Anyway, I, I find it so interesting though, that your list for the most part, for those essential ones are predominantly animal based. They are the plants were maybe what two, two of the, the top ones that you listed. Um, so that being said, like what poses the question, if, if we've got vegans or vegetarians, like, should they be concerned? Should they be supple? Like what's, how does that fit into play? Not that those are the only ones, right? They have those, like you said, but if those are, they by and large carry a high volume or amount per, you know, weight of, of what it is, you know, what do, is it, is it attainable for a vegan or vegetarian to meet all the nutrient requirements needed for their body to thrive? Based off it's, of it's it's harder for sure, especially for vegans. And I, I I pretty firmly believe that it's not possible to do that with a vegan diet without supplementation. And I think even many prominent vegans agree with that and and advocate, you know, supplementing with B12, EPA or DHA, like an a, a, an algae supplement to get enough DHA and and other nutrients as well. And that that just reflects, you know, without getting like. We don't need to get all really political and vitriolic and um, dogmatic about it. It's just biochemistry. If you understand the scale that I just said, and you and you understand that animal foods are primary or in some cases exclusive sources of certain essential vitamins and minerals, like B12, and there's there's debate around this. Uh, some will argue you can get B12 from yeast and or you know other foods, um, uh, spirulina, things like that. But I don't think that that's true. I think the biochemistry suggests that those are not true B12. They're analogs of B12 that can actually block true B12 absorption. But, you know, foods like B12, heme iron, zinc, retinol, which is the preformed vitamin A, EPA and DHA, these foods are preferentially found in animal foods, period. That's not controversial. Anyone who has any familiarity with nutritional science can look that up in a textbook and find that that is unequivocally true. So that doesn't mean that none of them are ever in plant foods, but it means you're going to have far lower intake of those nutrients if you exclusively eat plants. On the flip side, before, you know, <laughs> carnivores think, that I'm, you know, start to start cheering for me. There are a whole spectrum of nutrients, primarily phytonutrients, but also vitamin C, which is an essential nutrient that are preferentially, if not exclusively found in plant foods. And these are the ones I listed before, like carotenoids, dilyl sulfides from the allium class, like garlic and onions, polyphenols, flavonoids, like quercetin. Now, people have heard these terms a lot now because there's a lot of research that suggests that they're very important for our, our longevity and our well-being. They are not essential in the scientific sense of that term, meaning we can, we can technically live without them. 
if you were locked up in a metabolic ward and just fed animal foods with essential nutrients and given some vitamin C, you would survive. You would be able to, to keep living, which is not the case if we flip that around, locked you up and just fed you phytonutrients with none of the essential vitamins and minerals, you would die. You would develop beriberi, pellagra, any number of, of nutritional deficiency diseases, and you would live a short, painful life and die. But I would argue that without phytonutrients, you're probably not going to live your best life. You're probably not going to feel awesome. You're probably not going to have an ex, you know, a long health, as long of a health span as you might have otherwise. And so I think both of those are really important. Going back to your question, like vegans, I think supplementation is almost is a requirement. Vegetarians, you know, if they're eating dairy products, because dairy was fairly high on that list and eggs, um, that's, that's a good step up. Uh, but they're still going to fall short on some of the impor important essential vitamins and minerals. And as a clinician, for years, I would see vegetarians and vegans come into my office. And I got, it got to the point because I would always have blood work done before I saw the patient. And I would review their blood work before they came in. And I got to the point where I could recognize the blood panel of a vegan or a vegetarian before I even saw them. And when they would come in the office, I would, you know, I would sit down, we'd start talking. I'd say, so how long have you been a vegetarian? They'd be like, what? How did you even know I was a vegetarian? <laughs> and I would show them the blood work and say, well, this is why, you know, you're low in zinc, you're low in iron, your EPA and DHA is very low, you know, and we would go through it like that. You know, this is really for me coming from a purely a place of just wanting to help. I was a macrobiotic vegan for one point, at one point in my life. I was actually working as a macrobiotic vegan chef, cooking food for people who are really sick and delivering it to them. I was apprenticed with a, a renowned macrobiotic vegan chef in San Diego. I was a raw food vegan for some period of time. I was a vegetarian. I've done it all. I have many friends that are vegetarians and vegans. I'm not dogmatic about this. I just want to help people make sure they get the nutrients that they need. And to be absolutely fair, I think most omnivores need to supplement as well. So I'm not saying that only vegans and vegetarians need to supplement. I'm saying that most people are gonna benefit from supplementation. The amount and the type of supplementation will depend on their underlying diet for sure. So this it now is making me think about, because I, I saw some statistic that says that over half of the adult population is taking a multivitamin. And I think that that's kind of the blanket approach that most people have because it's like, well, I don't really know what deficiencies I have. So we'll just throw everything in, into one capsule or six capsules, however many you're taking. And hopefully that'll fill the missing buckets because I'm never going to really, you know, probably figure it out. But if we've got over half the population that's taking some type of multivitamin, and there's obviously a massive spectrum in terms of the quality and the sourcing, but we still have so much chronic disease and we're actually seeing an increase like in exponential, you know, uh, amounts, especially even in younger children, but we're even just the adult population. So what is it that, is it that they're taking the wrong form or is it that it's not enough? The, 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 the amount that they're taking is not filling the gaps. Like what is it that you would suggest for somebody that's like, well, I'm trying, I'm, you know, I'm paleo and I'm eating all this stuff and I'm buying the organic and I'm taking my multivitamin, but you know, I've got 
an autoimmune disorder. And, uh, you know, they've, they've just got a long list of symptoms that have been around just lingering. They can't really seem to resolve. Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Very fair one. I think it's all of the above to the, you know, for the factors that you mentioned, if you look at most multis, they don't have enough of, of what they need to have. Uh, and that's largely a finance, you know, often a financial thing. Um, you know, if, if, if they put a lot less of the ingredients in there, they have higher margins, they can make more money. Uh, some of it is just out of date research, I think that is, you know, where like we've learned over the last few years that we need more of certain nutrients, but that research has not yet trickled down into like how these mainstream generic multivitamins are produced. A, a great example would be vitamin D. You know, the, the RDA for vitamin D, believe it or not, is 600 IU per day. I don't know a single reputable vitamin D researcher, clinician, functional medicine, or even conventional medicine doctor that recommends only 600 IU of vitamin D a day. The vast majority of people, if that's all they take, will have serum vitamin D levels below the lab range. Um, most people need between two and 5,000 IU per day to maintain a, a vitamin D, a 25D level in the 40 to 60 range or 35 to 60 range, which is what's optimal. Some people need more than that. Studies have shown, I mentioned before, people with obesity and diabetes they not only absorb less vitamin D from, sea, from you know, seafood or supplements that they take orally, they also will produce less vitamin D in response to sun exposure than someone who is lean and non-diabetic. So you put two people with the exact same skin tone at the exact same latitude at the exact same time of day, expose them to the exact same period of sun, but one is obese and diabetic, they will produce far less vitamin D in response to that sun exposure. So some studies suggest that people who are in that category need to consume up to 10,000 IU of supplemental vitamin D per day uh, to, to maintain that normal range of vitamin D in the blood. So if you're taking a multi that has, hey, we, we have 100% of the RDA of vitamin D, well, big deal. <laughs> you know, that's not going to cut it for most people. That's 600 IU. There's, a, you know, vitamin B12 is same thing. The, their the paper was just published last year suggesting that the RDA for vitamin B, B12 should be 300 to 500% higher than it is today. So again, we're not, that's three to five fold higher. We're not talking about incremental change of like 10% or 20%. We're talking about massive difference. And so most multis, particularly the generic ones you'll find at like Walmart, Costco, GNC, et cetera, that are cheap, they don't have enough of each of the nutrients that, that we need to, to thrive and function optimally. And then the second uh, big factor, which you also alluded to, was the form of the nutrient. So folate is, is a great example. Folate is the natural form of vitamin B9 that we, we, we eat in food. Our bodies are really good at absorbing it and utilizing it. We know how to do that. We've been doing it for countless generations. The form that's often used in supplements is folic acid. 
And this is a, a, a different molecule. And for some people, especially people with genetic polymorphisms, um, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms in, in genes like MTHFR, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with or have heard about, they can't process folic acid very well. And they don't convert it into that uh, reduced form of folate that actually does all the good stuff that we want folate to do in the body. And so not only does folic acid not lead to the increase in folate that we would hope, it can actually linger around in the body as unmetabolized folic acid. And some studies suggest that that could increase the risk of cancer or cause other problems. We could say the same things about different forms of iron. Heme iron is more bioavailable than plant-based forms of iron. We talked about calcium before. Uh, vitamin B6, B, B2, all of these nutrients have form different forms and there are some that are very bioavailable and easy to absorb and there are others that are not. And not surprisingly, perhaps, the most bioavailable forms are more expensive. So supplement manufacturers kind of depend on people not understanding this because most people don't and I don't blame them. They don't have, you know, the average person doesn't have this kind of training or education and they just look at the label and see oh it's got it's got folic acid i've heard about that that must be good it's got b5 it's got b6 they, they don't know how to look at the fine print and see are they actually going to absorb this stuff or is it just going to produce expensive urine <laughs> which is what a lot of multivitamins and supplements do yeah i mean if you're somebody that is listening and say you can't, the likelihood, like you said earlier, of somebody being able to access some of the testing like HTMA or have somebody look at blood chemistry, like with a very functional mindset. And they're willing to invest in some of the supplementation to help augment their nutrition. Because if you're trying to kind of keep that dialed in and you feel like you're doing the best you can with that, but it's like, I am just, I'm like throwing darts out in the dark, like hoping that I hit the the, the right supplement that I need. You know, what is it that you would say, or what is it that you, you personally use? You know, I always love knowing like, what is it that you are supplementing on a regular basis with if it's, you know, and I, I realize like the organ capsules or organ meats, like if you're not getting organ meats, like that's a great one. And I, I have like a, a my banner that I will just carry over 2023 is that I want everyone to try eating organ meats and doing a coffee enema. <laughs> <laughs> like, those are my two things. So I'm you, like, you might have an uphill battle with that one. I think actually, to be honest, I think people are more likely to do coffee enemas than eat organs. Um, you might be right. That, that, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right, actually. Like I, because I, <laughs> I want treated... to see the scientific data on that <laughs> yeah, one. <laughs> well, we, you can do a, how about a social, how about an Instagram poll? Um, That's right. I think actually, it'd be fun, actually. You should do that and send me the results because I, I have a, we, okay. we could have a little friendly wager that people would be more likely to do a coffee enema than eat organ yes. meat. Like, yeah, you got to be specific. Like, would you eat like live, you know, liver, spleen, kidneys, and, and, uh, you know, or would you do a coffee enema? I'm, I'm, I'm virtually certain I'll, I'm right, but I'm, I'm really curious to see how that goes. <laughs> you're pretty, you're pretty bullish on that projection. I, so. Well, here's, here's why. Cause I, you know, I've treated patients for 15 years now and my patients are super motivated. Like I'm not, People who come to see me are not like coming off the street. You know, it's not their first rodeo. They, they're usually pretty complex chronic illness, like been sick for a long time, seen a lot of doctors, 
and they're motivated. They, they want to get well and they're better educated than most. And they know before, you know, our patients come in, sit down, they go like, I know you're going to tell me to eat organ meats. And I'm like, yep, I'm going to tell you to eat organ meats. And they're like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and so even these super motivated people are, are, are struggle. And it's because they're like, the taste, the texture in particular, I think of organ meats is, is what people find objectionable. And, and if you didn't grow up eating organ meats and acquiring that taste and getting used to it, your body can have a pretty visceral response against it. That's not even really in your control. You know, I think that's what happens to a lot of people. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. You know, I've, I have like, you guys do, you know, articles on my website about how to make them more palatable, you know, spices you can use and chopping liver and mixing it with ground beef or the, trying the, the gateway organ meat, which is heart, <laughs> which is actually a muscle. So it's technically not even an, or, it, you know, it's sort of like bridges the gap between organ and muscle meat. Some people who don't like any other kinds of organ meat will, will actually be able to eat heart. Chicken liver pate is, is one that a lot of people who don't like any other form of organ meat can actually tolerate. And it's super, it's one of the highest dietary sources of folate, which we were talking about earlier. So highly recommended. Um, but yeah, if, if, if you've done all that and you're just like, nope, can't do it. Give me a coffee enema anytime, but I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do the organs then yeah, a supplement is certainly the next best thing. And, and the good news about organ supplements, and you know, this is why I included one in, in my Core Plus bundle, which is the daily stack that I take myself and that I recommend for people, is that it's about as close to eating the whole food as you could possibly get. You know, organ supplements are not like a bunch of synthetic nutrients that you would find in organ meats. They are literally the organs from grass-fed cows, at least the good supplement, the good organ supplements that have been freeze-dried, you know, pretty close after harvesting to preserve the nutrient value and then desiccated, which means turned into a powder and then put into capsules. So you are eating organs. You're just not tasting them or preparing them yourself. So that's like really high up on my list. That's in my top five for absolute sure is an organ supplement. And the reason for that we talked about earlier, you know, that organs are four of the seven most nutrient dense foods on that list that I, that I shared and by a large margin. Pancreas was, was not on that list, but not because it's not nutrient dense, because they, but, but because they didn't measure it. It's just not, not very many people eat pancreas and you might argue not many people eat spleen or kidney either but actually in other parts of the world those are not unusual uh for people to eat so uh if pancreas had been measured i think it would have been on that list as well so when we created our organ supplement we went with all five of those organs because they have different nutrient profiles another obvious one is magnesium and i say obvious because I mentioned before, over 90% of, of people are not getting enough magnesium. Often the shortfall is dramatic. It's 200 to 300 milligrams less per day than, than they should be eating. And magnesium is, is required for at least 700 enzymatic reactions in the body. Here's the amazing thing about that statistic. When I first started doing this work, that number was 300. It has gone up just in the last 15 years from just more research and greater understanding of the importance of magnesium. It went from 
300 enzymatic reactions to 700. I keep having to review, like update my notes so that I get that right um, on podcasts like this. And so the vast majority of people are not getting enough. And it's so critical to so many different uh, functions in the body. And it has been shown to reduce the risk of diabetes, heart disease, a lot of the problems that we're facing, you know, and they're, they're really endemic for, for, for us in the U.S. Um, another one is, you know, going back to multis is a, high, a super high quality multi, but that's the key phrase, super high quality. So therapeutic doses, you know, doses that actually will move the needle. You need the right form of the right nutrients that are bioavailable and easy to absorb. You need not too much or not any at all of nutrients of, that you can overdo it on. So we didn't put much calcium in our multi because studies have shown that excess calcium intake from supplements can actually increase the risk of heart disease and kidney stones if you're taking the wrong form of calcium. Iodine, great, important nutrient, but for people with Hashimoto's, and th uh, which is a large number of people, it can be problematic if you take too much. Iron, very important. Lots of people are deficient in it, but too much iron can be a problem as well. And one in 200 people in, in the US of Northern European descent have a condition called hemochromatosis that leads to excess iron storage and can increase the risk of heart disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, shorten our lifespan, et cetera. So it's really complex, <laughs> you know, it's complex and you, you really like want to make sure that you're taking something that has the right balance of all these nutrients. And then the, la the, the last one I would say is mushrooms. So mushrooms are, are like pretty hot right now. A lot of people are talking about them. I've been using and working with mushrooms for over 20 years. Um, when I was originally trained in Chinese medicine way back in the day, for people who are familiar with Chinese medicine, mushrooms have a very long history of use in that paradigm, uh, at least 5,000 years from historical records. In fact, the first medical textbook that we know of it, that's ever been discovered mentions mushrooms being used medicinally. And that's been true in almost every traditional system of medicine around the world. And what's really cool is that modern science is now catching up. And we have studies, hundreds of studies that are published every year now on the incredible health benefits of mushrooms from the terpenes that they contain to beta-glucans to all kinds of other healing compounds. Some people refer to them as the modern fountain of youth. You can eat and prepare some mushrooms, uh, maitake, shiitake, for example, turkey tail, uh, lion's mane, beautiful mushroom. But other mushrooms like reishi and chaga they're really bitter and chewy. They're not good to eat. And to get their benefit, you would have to make like a, either a tea or some or an alcohol or water-based extract. And if you're into that kind of thing, awesome. You know, that's super fun to do that and make your own medicine at home. But again, let's be honest, how many people, <laughs> you know, maybe a, maybe a few more people than would do a coffee enema. <laughs> Um, maybe <laughs> that's going to be the new standard, yeah. <laughs> standard of measure. <laughs> Would you do a coffee enema, make your own mushroom medicine or eat <laughs> organs? I still think organs will be last on that list, but yeah, not a lot of people have the time or wherewithal to have their own at home apothecary and, and know like, Oh, with this mushroom, you, you really need to use alcohol in addition to water to get the full extraction of all the compounds. And with this, 
you know, requires a lot of expertise. It's, it's hard. So supplementing, I think, is more realistic for most people. Not to say that you shouldn't also eat mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I think they impart great flavor to food and add a lot of variety. But I want to get the full benefit of all the different mushrooms. So that's why I supplement. Do you like the, uh, the mushroom-based teas or coffees at all? You know, I love coffee. And, and just I regular do, coffee. I just regular, you know, fair trade, organic coffee. I think the research suggests that coffee is a phenomenally healthy food. I don't do super well with high amounts of caffeine. So I'll tend to have like, I'll make my own like half decaf Swiss water pressed, you know, and then half regular. Um, I also really like matcha. Mm. which is for people who aren't familiar with it, it's a type of green tea, it's shade grown, and it's really high in L-theanine in addition to having caffeine. And L-theanine has a calming effect on the nervous system. So it's, it's a little bit like having your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. But actually the, the experience for me of drinking it, I'll tend to have that in the early afternoon because it's still, it's lower in caffeine than coffee. And I, it has a sort of stress reducing effect, but it also just clarifies and sharpens my mind and helps me like really stay focused for the rest of the afternoon. So those are my beverages of choice. Uh, if I didn't love coffee and matcha as much as I do, I would probably drink some of the mushroom beverages as well. I, I always love, I'm always so interested to know because people are, tend to be like either a coffee person or a tea yeah. person. So Dr. Motley is like a chai tea person and Dr. Axe loves green tea and his wife is like coffee, espresso. Like, it's just so funny. I'm like, I always love knowing that too. Cause it's like, this is what, yeah. this is what warms our soul in the morning. It's yeah. like, what, what's your, what's your beverage? So, okay. Love matcha, love, love mushroom coffees, love good organic coffee. Um, so, all right, let's, I'm, I'm curious to know in the Cresser household, Give us an idea of what it looks like at dinner time on the table. What is a meal? Because you have a daughter. We have a lot of families that are our listeners. This is super practical. This is the stuff we want to know. Like, what is it that you're, you know, having out on your table that, you know, you guys are having as a family that you get excited about that you feel is super nourishing for your body? Obviously, like there's so much more into the experience of eating, but just give us a little snapshot. We want to know what's what's going on in the Cresser household. Yeah, well, you know, like everyone else, it depends. So um, we try to cook most meals at home. We don't eat out a lot. We don't do takeout very much um, because it's just hard to get the quality of food that you want that way. I mean, there's that's certainly changing and improving in many situations, but uh, we try to eat at home as much as possible. That so that's like the number one thing I think that would different, you know, maybe differentiates us from other families that we know. Not not that we're unique in that way, but it, it's a big focus for us. And I also think just like the experience of sitting down and eating together as a family is it, that's really important to me uh, as, as a dad and as a you know in, in a family. Um, you know, our, our meals are usually fairly simple unless, you know, if we have people over, we might let level up a little bit and get a little fancier, but it's usually some type of uh, animal protein. So it could be like last night we had salmon. Night before we had a instant pot uh, pork shoulder, which was delicious with like, you know, Mexican type of spices. 
some non-starchy vegetable, uh, oftentimes dark leafy greens. We mentioned on the nutrient density list that those are very high on the list. And fortunately, everyone in our family, including our daughter, happens to like dark leafy greens, which is just a big win. <laughs> you know, yes. it's not always the case. That's a huge um, win. Sometimes, you know, like broccoli, for example, if we put some butter and cheese and, and grate some cheese and melt some cheese on top, she'll eat it up and love it. And I'm totally happy to do that because I think those are healthful foods and they also increase the absorption of nutrients because some of the nutrients are fat soluble. So, and then some kind of, of carbohydrate typically or starch. So for us, that will be sweet potato, uh, could be white potato, could be plantains, could be white rice, which I think is generally pretty, as long as you don't have blood sugar issues and you're not having glucose spikes, you know, having rice or quinoa or something like that in moderation as part of a meal is great. Um, we'll often then have a fermented vegetable too. So like some sauerkraut or kimchi, uh, we might have some, a beverage like some beet kvass or some kind of ferment to, to really help support the gut flora. We often cook in with bone broth. So like the rice might be cooked with bone broth or the instant pot, like, you know, meat might be cooked with bone broth. So yeah, that's, it's pretty, pretty simple. Nothing too crazy, but, you know, try to just be really consistent with that on a day-to-day -day basis. I love it. Thank you for, for letting me be nosy and just poke my head into your household because there's a lot of value in just being able to visualize like, okay, other people are doing this too. Like I can do it because it is really hard, especially if you have multiple people and you've got kids and they're picky and, you know, everybody's on different schedules. And so sometimes it's not possible to make a meal and everybody sit at the table, but if you can do it, you know, a couple nights a week, at least, I think that like you even said, the experience of just being together and having a meal has so much value. So, um, I think that that's For really sure, cool. Isn't it? Yeah, and the Instant Pot is your friend or a slow cooker or whatever. Like that's an absolute game changer. You can you can even put frozen meat and roasts in the Instant Pot and just turn hit the button and you know in an hour or two or whatever, it will be ready. Lots of good recipes for that online cuz you know, we're push for time like most other people and a lot of time people think, "Oh my god, I have to cook every meal. It's going to take forever." I mean, literally if you'd put that in the Instant Pot, you put some sweet potatoes in the oven, turn it on, and then you have a salad that, you know, you've got greens that are washed and ready to go. It will take five minutes to put that dinner together. So everybody can do it. And you know what? This is coming from the man of the house too. So I, you get extra props for that because the women, they've got all the hacks. They know, cause we're, you know, we're a lot of times we're the ones, you know, doing the heavy lifting. I'm not trying to like pigeonhole the yeah. women here, but I'm just saying that's actually, that's really good practical advice. The Instapot is amazing. And even if you just double down, I have now started, if I'm going to like brown up some meat or something like that, I'm like, I'm just going to make a lot of extra, or if I'm going to cook rice, I love cooking rice. I did that last night. I did white rice and bone broth. And I'm like, I'm just going to make a lot of it because I know yeah. that my husband will have some with his lunch and the kids might want some, you know, a day or two later and adding in those extra nutrients from the bone broth makes it so savory and so tasty. Well, this is so fun. Okay. I would love for you to share where people can access all that you're doing. And if you are not listening to his podcast, Revolution Health Radio is amazing and you have incredible guests, but you also have a lot of episodes where you do a lot of teaching and you're an incredible gifted teacher at that. So if you're, if you're following along and you're tracking with this, 
make sure you check out his work over there, but you've also got the Cresser Institute. There's so many different things. So maybe just give us like the quick rundown of where people can find you, where all the different platforms are, how they can access your work, your materials. Um, because I know that this is peaking interest and I know that people will love to continue their, their learning journey from you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'll keep it super simple because everything, you know, chriscrasser.com is the main hub for everything. So that's my content site, you know, free ebooks, articles, everything there. And, and you can access the podcasts and social media platforms through that site. And then adaptnaturals.com is the supplement brand that we launched with all these principles of helping people overcome nutrient deficiency and feel and perform their best. So that's, that's, that's where I'm focusing a lot of my attention now. Thank you That's so awesome. much. This was a really a real pleasure to be on the show. Oh, it's been so much fun. And I don't know how I managed to squeeze in a coffee enema into the conversation <laughs> of nutrients, but I want you to do that. I want you to do that poll and send <laughs> me the results. Okay. We are awesome. we are for sure gonna do it. So when this podcast drops, I will we're gonna tag you and we're gonna, we're gonna like do a, Yes, we're gonna do a yeah. poll. And we're going to get everybody to listen to the podcast and submit their vote on coffee enema awesome. or organs. And then you can publish a study on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. All right. Groundbreaking well, information. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in today. And we will see you on the next episode. Hey, Dr. Axe here. I want to say thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like and subscribe to the show so you don't miss a thing. Also, if you're in search of more natural health content, you can follow us at Health Institute on Instagram or subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the show notes below. Hey, thanks a lot and have a blessed week.